Section 22 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 1, From the Beginning Until the Death of Alexander I, 1825, by Shimon Dubunov, translated by Israel Friedlander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim, Seoul, South Korea. Chapter 10, The Enlightened Absolutism of Alexander I. Part 2. 3. The projected expulsion from the villages. The legal enactment of 1804 was appraised by the Russian Jews at its true value, problematic benefits in the future, and undeniable hardships for the present. The prospect of future benefits, the attainment of which was conditioned by the weakening of the time-honored foundations of stalwart Jewish cultural life, expressing itself in language, school, and communal self-government, had no fascination for Russian Jews, who had not yet been touched by the influences of Western Europe. But what the Russian Jews did feel, and feel with sickening pain, was the imminence of a terrible economic catastrophe the expulsion of hundreds of thousands of Jews from the villages. It soon became evident that the expulsion would affect 60,000 Jewish families, or about half a million Jews. Needless to say, within the two or three years of respite, which remained before the catastrophe, this huge mass could not possibly gain access to new fields of labor and establish itself in new domiciles, and it was therefore in danger of being starved to death. In consequence, St. Petersburg was flooded with petitions imploring the authorities to postpone the expulsion for a time. These petitions came not only from the Kahals, but also from country squires for whom the removal of the Jewish tenants and innkeepers from their estates entailed considerable financial losses. With the approach of the year 1808, the time limit set for the expulsion, the shouts of despair from the provinces became louder and louder. It is difficult to say whether the Russian government would have responded to the terrible outcry had it not been for an event which set all the political circles of St. Petersburg agog. It was in the autumn of 1806. The Jewish parliament in Paris, which had been assembled by Napoleon, was concluding its sessions and was sending out appeals to all the countries of Europe, announcing the impending convocation of the Great Synhedrion. This new fad of Napoleon disturbed all the European governments which were on terms of enmity with the French emperor, and had reason to fear the discontent of their Jewish subjects. The Austrian government went so far as to forbid the Jews to enter into any relations with dangerous Paris. St. Petersburg, too, became alarmed. Napoleon, who had just shattered Prussia and had already entered her Polish provinces, was gradually approaching the borders of hostile Russia. The awe inspired by the statement-like genius of the French emperor made the Russian government suspect 
that the convocation of a universal Jewish synhedrion in Paris was merely a Napoleonic device to dispose the Jewish masses of Prussia, Austria, and Russia in his favor. In these circumstances, it seemed likely that the resentment aroused in the Russian Jews by their imminent expulsion from the villages would provide a favorable soil for the wily agitation of Napoleon and would create a hotbed of anti-Russian sentiment in the very regions soon to become the theater of war. To avoid such risks, it seemed imperative to extinguish the flame of discontent and stop the expulsion. Thus, it came about that in the beginning of February 1807, at the very moment when the sessions of the Sniedrion were opened in Paris, the Minister of the Interior, Kotzubai, submitted a report to Alexander I, in which he pointed out the necessity of postponing the transplantation of the Jews from the villages into the towns and townlets, so as to guard this nation in general against the intentions of the French government. The Tsar concurred in this opinion, with the result that a special committee was immediately formed to consider the practical application of the Statute of 1804. Apart from Kutzbai and other high officials, the committee included the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Budberg, diplomatic considerations being involved in the question. On February 15th, Senator Alexeyev was directed to inspect the western provinces and find out to what extent the military circumstances and the present condition of the border provinces, as well as the economic ruins of the Jews, which is inevitable if their expulsion be enforced, render this expulsion difficult or even impossible of execution. At the same time, the Minister of the Interior instructed the administrators of the Western governments to prevent the slightest contact between the Jews of Russia and the Synhedrion in Paris, which the French government was using as a tool to curry political favor with the Jews. The same circular letter to the governors recommends another rather curious device. It suggests that the Jews be impressed with the idea that the Synhedrion in Paris was endeavoring to modify the Jewish religion and for this reason did not deserve the sympathy of the Russian Jews. At the same time, Holy Synod was sending out circulars instructing the Greek Orthodox clergy to inform the Russian people that Napoleon was an enemy of the Church and a friend of the Jews that he might the more effectively put the Church of Christ to shame. So the Holy Synod proclaimed, Napoleon assembled the Judean synagogues in France and established the great synhedrion of the Jews, that same ungodly assembly which had once dared pass the sentence of crucifixion upon our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and he now plans to unite the Jews whom the wrath of the Almighty had scattered over the face of the whole earth, so as to incite them to overthrow the Christian Church and proclaim the pseudo-Messiah in the person of Napoleon. 
By these devices, the government, finding itself at its wit's end in the face of a great war, shrewdly attempted to frighten at once the Jewish people by the specter of an anti-Jewish Napoleon and the Orthodox Russians by Napoleon's leaning toward Judaism. The former were made to believe that the Synhedrion was directed against the Jewish religion, and the latter were told that it was established by the Jewish pseudo-Messiah for the overthrow of Christianity. In this precarious situation, the government once more decided to ascertain, by means of circular inquiry, the views of representatives of the Jewish communities on the best ways of carrying the reform into effect. The U.K.'s of February 19, issued by the Tsar on this occasion, is couched in surprisingly mild terms. Prompted by the desire to give our subjects of the Jewish nationality another proof of our solicitude about their welfare, we have deemed it right to allow all the Jewish communes in the governments of Vilna, Grodno, Kiev, Minsk, Podolia, Volhynia, Vitebsk, and Mogilev to elect deputies and to suggest through them to the gubernatorial administrators the means which they themselves consider best fitted for the most successful execution of the measures laid down in the Statute of 1804. The deputies were summoned this time not to St. Petersburg, but to the provincial capitals in order to present their opinions to the governors. The expression of opinion on the part of the Jewish deputies, or as they were officially styled, the attorneys of the Jewish communes, did not limit itself to the fatal 34th clause, which all the deputies wished to see repealed, or at least postponed for an indefinite period. Serious objections were raised also to the other provisions of the Jewish constitution. The deputies advocated the abolition of double taxation for all classes of Jewish population. They asked for a larger range of authority for the rabbinical tribunals and for a mitigation of the provisions forbidding the use of Hebrew in legal documents, promissory notes, and commercial ledgers. Some of them pleaded for a postponement of law concerning Hebrew as being inconvenient to business, while others suggested permitting the use of Hebrew for promissory notes up to the sum of 100 rubles. The deputies also called attention to the difficulty on the part of the rabbis and Jewish members of magistracies of acquiring the Russian language within so short a period. They were ready to assent to the change of dress for the magistrates and those living temporarily outside the pale. But they pointed out at the same time that the prescribed German dress was not becoming to Jews, who, on account of religious scruples, refused to shave their beards, and that in the case of magistrates and visitors to the Russian interior, they would prefer to adopt the Russian form of dress. As for the laws relating to education, the deputies observed that it would be useless for Jewish children to go to the common Russian schools as long as they did not understand the Russian language, and that it would, for this reason, 
seem more practicable first to have them acquire the Russian language in the Jewish schools where they were taught the Hebrew language and the dogmas of the faith. By the time the opinions of the deputies were conveyed by the governors to St. Petersburg, the political sentiment there had undergone a change. In July 1807, the Peace of Tilsit had been concluded. An entente cordiale had been established between Napoleon and Alexander I, and Russia no more stood in awe of Bonaparte's intrigues. There was no more reason to fear a secret understanding between the Russian Jews and the Parisian Sniedrion, which had shortly before been prorogued, and the bureaucratic compassion for the unfortunate Jews vanished into air. The last term set for the expulsion from the villages, January 1, 1808, was drawing near, and two months before this date, on October 19, 1807, the Tsar addressed a new case marked by extraordinary severity to the governor-general of the western region. The circumstances connected with the war, the UK's states in part, were of a nature to complicate and suspend the transplantation of the Jews. These complications can now, after the cessation of the war, be averted in the future by means of a gradual and most convenient arrangement of the work of transplantation. For these reasons, we deem it right to lay down an arrangement by means of which the transplantation of the Jews, beginning with the date referred to above, may be carried into effect without the slightest delay and mitigation. The arrangement alluded to consisted in spreading the expulsion from the villages over three years. One-third of the Jews were to be expelled in 1808, another third in 1809, and the last third in 1810. Committees were appointed to assist the governors in carrying out the expulsion decree. These committees were instructed to make it incumbent upon the Kahals to render financial assistance to the expelled, to those who were being pitilessly ruined by the government. The horrors of the expulsion began. Those who did not go willingly were made to leave by force. Many were ejected ruthlessly under the escort of peasants and soldiers. They were driven like cattle into the townlets and cities and left there on the public squares in the open air. The way in which the expulsion from the villages was carried out in the government of Vitebsk was particularly ferocious. Scores of exiled Jews petitioned the authorities to have them transferred to New Russia to the agricultural colonies in which several hundred Jewish families had found some kind of shelter. But the supply of arable land and the funds set aside for the transfer were found to be exhausted. The appeals, therefore, remained unheeded. The distress of the Jewish masses reached such colossal proportions that the governors themselves, in their reports to the central government, declared that it was impossible to carry out the expulsion decree without subjecting the Jews to complete ruin. 
Accordingly, a new ukase was issued in the last days of December 1808 to the effect that the Jews be left in their former domiciles pending special imperial orders. In the beginning of January 1809, a new committee, chronologically the third, was appointed in St. Petersburg for the purpose of examining all the phases of the problem of devoting the Jews from the rural liquor traffic to other branches of labor. This time, the committee consisted of Senator Alexeyev, who had made a tour of inspection through the western provinces, Privy Councilor Popov, Assistant Minister of the Interior Kozdavlev, and others. In his instructions to Popov, who was chairman of the committee, the Tsar admits that the impossibility of removing the Jews from the villages results from the fact that the Jews themselves, on account of their destitute condition, have no means which would enable them, after leaving their present abodes, to settle and found a home in their new surroundings, while the government is equally unable to undertake to place them all in new domiciles. It has therefore been found necessary to seek ways and means whereby the Jews, having been removed from their exclusive pursuit of selling wine in the villages, hamlets, inns, and public houses, may be enabled to earn a livelihood by labor. At the same time, the committee was directed to take into consideration the opinions submitted previously by the Jewish deputies. After indulging in cruel vivisectionist experiments on human beings, the government finally realized that mere paper orders were powerless to remodel an economic order which centuries of development had created and that violent expulsions and restrictions might result in ruining people but not in effecting their amelioration. The committee was at work for three years. The results of its labors were embodied in a remarkable report submitted in March 1812 to Alexander I. Since Speransky's declaration of 1803, reproduced above, this official document was the first to utter a word of truth on the Jewish problem. It is proposed the report declares to remove the Jews from the rural liquor traffic because the latter is considered harmful to the population. But it is obvious that the root of the drinking evil is not to be found with the saloon keepers, but in the right of distilling or propination, which constitutes the prerogatives of the squires and their main source of income. Let us suppose the 60,000 Jewish salon keepers to be turned out from the villages. The result will be that 60,000 Russian peasants will take their places, tens of thousands of efficient farmhands will be lost to the soil, while the Jews cannot be expected to be transformed into capable agriculturalists at a moment's notice, the less so as the government has no resources to effect this sudden transformation of salon keepers into corn growers. It is not true that the village Jews enriches himself at the expense of the peasant. On the contrary, 
he is generally poor, and ekes out a scant existence from the sale of liquor and by supplying the peasants with the goods they need. Moreover, by buying the corn on the spot, the Jew saves the peasants from wasting his time in traveling to the city. Altogether, in rural economic life, the Jew places the role of a go-between, who can be spared neither by the squire nor by the peasant. To transfer all village Jews to the cities and convert them into manufacturers, merchants, and artisans is a matter of impossibility, for even the Jewish population already settled in the cities is scarcely able to make a living, and to create factories and mills artificially would be throwing money into the water, especially as the exchequer has no free millions at its disposal to enable it to grant subsidies to manufacturers. The recent experiments of the government have had no effect. On the contrary, the Jewish people has not only remained in the same state of poverty, but has even been reduced to great destitution as a result of having been forced out of a pursuit which had provided it with a livelihood for several centuries. Hence, the committee, realizing this situation of a whole people and being afraid that the continuation of compulsory measures in the present political circumstances may only exasperate these people, already restricted to the utmost, deems it necessary to put a resolute stop to the now prevailing method of interference by allowing the Jews to remain in their former abodes and by setting free the pursuits suspended by Clause 34. The government submitted. In yielding, it was moved not so much by the clear and incontrovertible arguments of the committee, which amounted to a deadly criticism of the current system of state patronage, as by the political circumstances alluded to in the concluding sentences of the report. Napoleon's army was marching towards the Russian frontier. The war which was to embroil the whole of Russia and subsequently the whole of Europe had broken out. At such a moment, when the French army was flooding the whole of Western Russia, it seemed far more dangerous to create groups of persecuted and embittered outcasts than it had been in 1807, when the French invasion was merely a matter of apprehension. In these circumstances, the question whether the Jews should be left in the villages and hamlets found a favorable solution of itself without any special ukase. Stirred to the core, Russia, in the moment of national danger, had to rely for her salvation upon the strenuous exertions of all her inhabitants, Jews included. End of section 22